Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm an associate director of the Center for Faith and Culture and associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture, celebrating 25 years, brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. The Center seeks to understand and impact in a meaningful way the relationship between and among the many facets of the American way of life in relation to God's ongoing loving encounter with humanity. Uh, Today's guest is Stefan Shivko. Uh, He is a regional missionary for the St. Paul Street Evangelization. First of all, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Glad to be here. Uh, so I'd like to get into talking here in a minute about uh, St. Paul Street Evangelization and just street evangelization in general. But before we get to that, um, let's sort of back up and start with some autobiography. Tell us about your uh, uh, religious upbringing, if you had one. What did that look like in the family when you were when you were a kid? Sure. So I grew up in Massachusetts, both of my parents practicing Catholics, which for us meant you go to church every Sunday and teach your kids to try to be good people. But we didn't have like family prayers or talking much about the faith Mm. outside of the um, big holidays. So I had a important encounter at my confirmation retreat, which kind of made me decide that, yeah, this Catholic faith is real, Jesus is real, and this is what I want to live for. Then in college, I got—I I never stopped being a faithful Catholic, but I got involved with an evangelical Protestant group called mm. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, sure, sure. and I was just blown away at their enthusiasm and boldness in talking about Jesus mm. to just anyone, friends or strangers, and I'm thinking, like, why aren't we Catholics doing this kind <laughs> of stuff? Then a few can, years. Well, before we go on to that, can we back up a little bit and talk about that confirmation retreat a little bit? What what uh, what happened on the on that ex- experience? Sure. Okay. So as a teenager, um, my great love was history. Sure. And you read enough history, you start to get a sense of how evil humans can be. <laughs> it seems to be the chronicle of one uh, nasty conqueror sweeping in and then being overwhelmed a generation later by another one. Mm-hmm. And then just watching the nightly news at all of the killings and drug and wars and stuff, humanity hasn't changed much. Mm. So I was struggling with this darkness of like, okay, the church is teaching all this stuff about love your enemy, do good to those who hate you. Is Jesus for real, or Mm. is this like a recipe to get stomped on? So I was wrestling with that as a teenager, and during my confirmation retreat, I had a powerful vision from God of what would the world be like if everyone were to follow Christ's teaching? Mm -hmm. And I decided... I don't know if this will work, mm-hmm. but that's what I want to live for. Mm. So I wound up accepting Christ and getting confirmed and haven't stopped since. So um, you had that experience with inner varsity, but in the interim there, those sort of high school teenage years, uh-huh. um, sometimes people sort of um, have a, an existential or, or spiritual crisis. Was that something that happened to you? That was kind of the crisis going up to, and it got resolved at my confirmation retreat. Oh, okay. All right, so that happened. After that, you. I started reading the Bible, which mm-hmm. hadn't done much as a kid. Sure. And you, you, there's often a gap. We do our best with catechesis, but... Just getting a sense of who Jesus is is no replacement for just taking a gospel and reading it start mm. to finish. 
So when you came back from that retreat, I'm assuming your parents quickly noticed a, a transformation in you. What? How did they respond to that? It was gradual. And like as a teenager, I was very shy mm-hmm. and personal, so I didn't talk much about this deep stuff. Mm. But um, it, it uh, took some time. Did they see you reading the Bible and say, yeah, hmm, yeah, I've never yeah, seen yes, that before? Yeah. So th- there, there were some changes. Like another thing, I started wearing a cross, mm-hmm. which I had never done before. So it's okay. kind of my personal statement that, yes, this is what I believe in. Okay. So then you go off to college right. uh, and you had an experience with InterVarsity, which uh-huh. is is not a Catholic group. Correct. Um, were you at a Catholic university? No, this was University of Pennsylvania. Okay. All right. When you, uh, excellent school, um, but not a Catholic school. So when you were um, and, well, looking into colleges as a senior in high school, did, did that uh, sort of play into your thought at all? Not really. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking for the best school I could get into. Sure, sure. Uh, did you go to Catholic school K through 12? It was a public school, public, public education. School. Okay, so public all the way through and through. Good. Um, so then you had this experience with InterVarsity. How did that change you? So... Like I said, I remained Catholic. I was active in the Newman Center throughout this time, and I viewed myself as kind of a bridge Mm. between the Catholics and the evangelical Protestants. Mm -hmm. There's so much I learned and loved from my evangelical brethren, their deep love for Scripture, their desire to share Jesus with other people. And yet at the same time, they're missing in such crucial things like the Eucharist and the role of the saints in the broader Mm -hmm. church and like the role of the magisterium in allowing us to be sure of what we believe is true. Mm-hmm. How did these two groups, the Catholic and then the Protestants and the InterVarsity, how did they look at you as the bridge? Did they admire that or were they suspicious of you for even attempting such a, a radical thing and having sort of ecumenical outreach? <laughs> well, they were. the InterVarsity is a very accepting group. They, they made efforts to make Catholics not feel like outsiders. And okay. There were like four or five other Catholics there during my time. Mm-hmm. So we had some uh, very interesting conversations, of mm. course, over the year, which I love, over the years, which I loved. And my senior year, I actually lived in a house with five other guys from InterVarsity, and I was the only Catholic. And you get to know people on a deep level when you're housemates. Sure. But like, they would accept that I have a real relationship with Jesus. And so I've got these differences, but that's the thing that really Really matters for them. Mm-hmm. And then you would go to the Newman Center and you were on fire and you're like, hey, why aren't we evangelizing like these Protestants? How how did the Newman Center folk <laughs> accept that? Um, it's a different environment. And I don't know that I was that like pushing it at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I was more kind of absorbing and seeing things and changing other events that happened during the college experience that you think uh, sort of played into your uh, shaping you? Uh, not so much in college. Um, so like a year after I left college, I spent a year volunteering at a homeless shelter in mm-hmm. Connecticut. Okay. And that was a very difficult year in many ways, but just... Is that a Catholic worker house? This was through a program of the uh, the Diocese of Hartford for like people right out of college Mm -hmm. would spend a year volunteering at different ministries in the city, and we'd be living in community. So, um, but yeah. And how did that shape you at that point? Seeing people, homeless situation, Mm -hmm. and maybe a third of the clients, the guests at our shelter were having issues with the drugs mm. or alcohol and like 
this feeling that like they really need Christ and my ability to give them what they need is so limited. Mm -hmm. It was difficult. It you end up growing learning how to grow deeper in Christ through something like that. So you had been at, you know, one of the elite institutions for four years. I've been to the campus. It's a quite a beautiful campus, flush with money, lots of people walking around who are brilliant. And then almost immediately, you're dealing with a very different set of, of population. What did that do to your mind or your spirituality to have to go from really one extreme of, of the American life to encountering the other extreme of the American life? I mean, I'd been somewhat active with the ministry to the homeless as a student as well. That was more through the Newman Center. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so in some ways, I feel when you're that deprived or materially needing, your life is more real. Mm. A lot of the stuff that goes on at elite institutions, it's very superficial and rarefied and like abstracted from what are the essentials in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it kind of a grounding experience in some ways. And you said you did that for one year? One year right. After that, is that when you started to get involved with uh, St. Paul Street Evangelization? Not yet. Okay. But um, a bit after that, I was able to go to World Youth Day in Sydney, Australia, oh, great. which was a wonderful experience. I went as a pilgrim with 19 people from Houston, mm -hmm. and um, one of the other what guys year was there, there, this was 2008. Okay, so Benedict... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, one of the guys who went was at the time a seminarian. He's now a priest in the diocese. And he brought, I kid you not, a suitcase full of 5,000 miraculous medals. <laughs> so he recruited us to start giving them out to sure. different people at World Youth Day. And that was an awesome experience. Mm -hmm. And after that, a few of us decided, like, we want to keep doing something mm -hmm. to keep the World Youth Day message going mm -hmm. and to keep growing in Christ. And um, we ended up deciding on trying to evangelize here in Houston. Okay. So we would go out to like a bar or a park or something and try to engage people in conversation and share mm -hmm. our experiences and maybe offer them a miraculous medal or something like that. And that lasted for about half a year. Then my job in Houston ended. I had to move away mm. and the other people moved on to other things. So the group kind of fell apart. When I moved back to Houston, like three years after that, so 2012, mm -hmm. I was looking for some kind of evangelism experience, a group to do evangelism with. Mm -hmm. And uh, my old friends had gone into other things, so they weren't really available for that. And it was kind of in this place of seeking for this, because it's such an important element to share the faith we've been given. As St. John Paul II says, faith grows by sharing. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see anything. So I had asked a few of my friends if they knew of any groups. And one of, one of my friends told me that while on a trip in San Francisco, they had encountered this person from a group called St. Paul Street Evangelization. So looked up the website and found out, like, within a few months, they were running a training for regional missionaries. <laughs> Whoa! Holy Spirit moves! <laughs> so tell us about, uh, before we get into that particular... Um, 
uh, training experience. What is St. Paul Street Evangelization? What is its founding? What is its mission? Sure. So a guy named Steve Dawson back in, around 2009-2010 was a bit um, unhappy. He had been hearing a lot of exciting stuff about the new evangelization, but he wasn't seeing much happening at the parish level. Mm -hmm. So he started going out and standing on a street corner and giving out rosaries mm -hmm. and just talking to people. And that just grew like crazy. So in 2012, he officially incorporated St. Paul Street Evangelization based out near Detroit. Mm. And it's a grassroots movement to engage ordinary lay Catholics like you and me mm -hmm. in the new evangelization. Mm -hmm. We adopt a non-confrontational approach towards evangelization. We try to like engage people in conversation, find places of connection with someone, and then look for an opportunity to share our faith in Christ and to invite them to consider Christ and his church. Talk about that uh, training experience you had. I mean, you, you already had a little bit. You said the first or earlier when you had lived in Houston, you had some experience of, of street evangelization, but now you're getting a training experience. Sure. What, sure, sure. what did you learn there? How did that change the way you thought about uh, street evangelization? So... Hmm. I wouldn't say I had done much street evangelization prior to the um, World Youth Day experience okay. and the fallout from that. But the idea of talking to strangers about Jesus was something that I had already been exposed to. The idea of praying out loud for someone, for their intentions, was something beautiful I've seen in the evangelical Protestant mm -hmm. community and had learned how to do that. At um, The regional missionary training was about a week long, and we got a strong immersion in prayer because that's the grounding of all evangelization. Sure. It's all about Jesus. We got we studied some of the church documents re regarding evangelization from Vatican II or Evangelii Nunciandi. We also looked into some of the mechanics of how do you share your personal testimony? How do you kind of sort through your life experience to be able to summarize what God's been doing in your life? Mm -hmm. How to present the gospel in a short period of time, the basic gospel message. Mm -hmm. And we had, ex we had practice praying for one another. And then we had a on-hands street evangelization experience as part of the training where we would go out in groups of two or three into a major event in Detroit. It's a um, basically a car parade of different automobiles, and there's thousands upon thousands oh, of sure. pedestrians. So we would go up and talk to uh, people watching it and invite them to a prayer uh, prayer event that evening in the church mm -hmm. and then try to, like, engage them in conversation as a result of that. So just a wonderful, wonderful experience. There are many ways of spreading the gospel. The sort of hip, cool one these days, of course, is, is social media and the internet and podcasts and all those types of things, YouTube. Um, your, your, group, your group and you are sort of getting back to the, to the roots, um, getting back to the way St. Paul did it. Why to you is that the, I don't know, preferred method or the best method? What, what is it about the sort of face-to-face, in-the-street, meeting a random person? Um, why is that the way that you think that's, that's the way you want to spend your life evangelizing? Okay. So the first thing I would say is evangelism ultimately is a lifestyle. It's a basic 
disposition towards the world. Mm -hmm. It's a mindset of whatever situation you find yourself in, being open to where the Holy Spirit might be leading you to talk to someone, pray for someone, interact with someone. So when you're when you're involving in long-term relationships with people evangelization is a part of it as well mm -hmm. what street evangelization does for me a number of things by having a focused time each month where i'm committing to being evangelization evangelizing mm -hmm. it sharpens my awareness for the evangelizing opportunities that come by on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis mm -hmm. so it, it kind of keeps my antennae open mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of different methods of evangelization, it's a face-to-face -face encounter. There's nothing that reproduces that for in terms of social media or broadcasting. Mm -hmm. They have their places, sure. but when you are like, you can get a better sense of someone mm -hmm. and their sincerity and their like level of energy and enthusiasm from a face-to-face mm -hmm. that you just can't really get through other forms. It allows you for immediate back-and-forth mm -hmm. response. There's something, especially about praying for someone in the moment that I don't really see how it can happen in a lot of other formats. And like you can, in response to interacting with someone, suddenly get an idea or inspiration and then bounce that off them and see where that, that might be where the Holy Spirit's leading. So it does require a certain amount of courage. Sure. But another thing about street evangelization, most of the people you encounter are strangers. You're there a minute, 10 minutes, at most maybe half an hour. They go their way, you, you go yours, and you're not likely to see them again. Mm -hmm. So that's awfully freeing. Mm. How so? So when you're, when you're dealing with an ongoing relationship with someone at work or someone in your family, you say something, you do something, they're going to carry that and it's going to be affecting your relationship for mm -hmm. years maybe. Right. So you can be worried about, I know this is an issue in their life. I know this is blocking God from working them in their life. I don't know how to approach this. I don't want to say the wrong thing that might jeopardize our relationship. Right. Whereas if you're dealing with strangers, often there's an openness because specifically because you're not likely to see them again. Mm -hmm. So the baggage won't come back to haunt them. Right. So in summary, it kind of sounds like um, compared to social media and other forms, it's street evangelization is incarnational, which of course yes. are an incarnational people. Beautifully put. Okay. Um, Thanks, so you said um, it's freeing to do the street evangelization. I'm wondering on the flip side of that, you don't ever really see the fruits of all your yes. hard work. Is that... Uh, um, dispiriting at times? Well, I wouldn't say so. It's a question of faith, and there's someone, uh, old old saying, that's like, I just sow the seeds. Mm -hmm. God makes them grow. Sure. And ultimately, these different people have a choice, and I'm still praying for some of the folks I've encountered over mm -hmm. the years, and God will do it in his time, how he chooses. Have you ever run into any of them again, you know, years later, and then they said, you know, it's shaped me and I go to mass every week or anything like that? I've only had one that I really remember. This was actually in my college years after a wonderful praise and worship um, session with InterVarsity. Mm -hmm. I met a homeless man on the street and just was so on fire. I told him about Jesus and like how much he loved him. And then maybe a year or so later, 
I heard from other people that he had converted and was now going mm. to church. Okay, good. <laughs> Even though you may, with this exception that you just mentioned, you, you may not generally see the fruits of your individual right. work. Do you see, in general, fruits from the street evangelization? Uh, in other words... Um, um, and 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 not even necessarily another person that you have worked with as you evangelize. I guess what, I guess the question I'm asking is, um, do you see street evangelization in general, whether it's your work in particular, uh, transforming Houston in any sort of concrete way? I think the first transformation happens in the evangelist. Mm. And okay, so for one thing, I believe in the power of prayer. And some of my, some of the most wonderful experiences have been when we were talking to someone on the streets and they share, oh, please pray for my daughter. She's going through a crisis. Please pray for my grandma. They're sick with cancer. And you pray for them in that moment and you can feel the spirit moving. And it just really boosts the faith of the evangelist mm -hmm. as well as the people we're praying for. On the flip side, when we're evangelizing in downtown in the park, a lot of the people around there are homeless. And some of these guys have this amazing faith in Christ that just floors me. Mm. They're literally in a situation depending on God for their daily bread. Right. And just listening to their stories, I'm blown away. So like, there's so much more room where I can grow in my faith. You obviously evangelize here in Houston, the United States of America. You could be doing it elsewhere. And if you were doing it elsewhere, there would be certain cultural challenges. You know, every culture is a bit different, which would then therefore pose uh, different cultural challenges to street evangelization. So what are the challenges in our American culture uh, that you would say that get in the way of evangelization uh, through this method? So like radical individualism or crass consumerism, or is there something that you sort of continually butt up against and think, oh, there's this, this American um, cultural aspect that's just uh, blocking our ability to evangelize it better? Sure. So one of the issues that often it actually comes out in people who are considering evangelizing but kind of scared there's this image of the soapbox preacher mm -hmm. who's standing around condemning everyone saying repent or go to hell right. that's completely different from our approach but quite a few of the people we see they kind of see us there it's like some religious event i want to get away from them because i'm afraid <laughs> that they might they have this image of what an evangelist is, and it's like this negative and condemnatory approach, and I don't want to deal with that. Right. So in some ways, this, this culture has a strong Christian heritage, and many of the people are kind of, oh, I already know about that. I did all of that as a child, sure. and I'm beyond that or whatnot. So there's, there can be a closeness to hearing the gospel. There, there's a beautiful encounter we had this past weekend where this lady was in town for a conference, and she stopped by our booth and um, she said, oh, I'm from India and like I know absolutely nothing about Christianity. I mean, oh. there, I've heard there are Christians in South India, but sure. I don't know the first thing about it. And there's this wonderful openness there that we could talk and not have all of this baggage mm -hmm. 
to deal with. <laughs> uh, on the flip side of that coin, what in our culture, our American culture, actually facilitates evangelization through this particular method? Sure. So you have people who, we, we often have people stop by who are like already practicing Catholics or Christians who are mm -hmm. really glad we're there and they're giving us words of encouragement and that's a beautiful thing to see. Also, there's a general openness to new things and to new experiences mm. within our culture. It's a good thing in us not to be stuck in a rut, but to like be open to new possibilities. So you have people sometimes willing to stop by and talk about Christ because like, oh, I don't know much about that. Maybe I should learn. Mm -hmm. When you're evangelizing, where do you see particular uh, receptivity, um, uh, more receptivity among certain groups other than others? So I, I'm guessing, and I could be wrong, that the, the least receptive group towards Catholic evangelization is actually Catholics, and that others might be more, you know, who maybe grew up going to Catholic school and they had some sort of uh, bitter experience growing up, um, and then maybe somebody else who's not a Catholic is actually more receptive to your method. Is is that my guess uh, accurate? Each, or each individual is in a different place. Okay, sure. So yeah, we've had a few people who were like very upset about something a priest had said five, ten, twenty years ago, and like didn't want anything to mm -hmm. do with us. I've occasionally run into Protestants who are like, "Oh no, you're like this evil anti-Christian <laughs> sect." That's yeah. So yeah, we we get all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wouldn't say there's any one particular group that's more closed off than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, oftentimes, mm -hmm. like I said, the most open are those most in need, the gentlemen living on the streets. Right. They, they know they need prayer. Mm, sure. Uh, I want to come back to something you touched on a little bit earlier. You mentioned courage, virtue of fortitude. Um, what, um, uh, how do you persist when, when, um, uh, when there are difficulties, when, there are, when people don't seem to be receiving? What, what, what is the... Um, the, the motivation to, to, to continue to be courageous and going out in this, this difficult ministry? I wouldn't say it's a difficult ministry. I feel blessed and honored to be able to take part in mm. Christ's work of evangelizing. Sure. Um, yeah, my team is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. It's not just me. How many people in Houston are part of this group? So we have like, I think, four separate teams um, Lori and Armin, this wonderful pair of sisters, are starting a team up in the woodlands. Okay. But um, they were evangelizing with me for like over a year here in downtown Houston. There's Carlos and um, Megan and her new husband, Alex, who have been coming more recently with our group here in downtown Houston. We had two new first-timers come last, uh, last weekend, uh, Brian and James. Uh, old parishioner friend of mine, Bud, and this, I'm sure, like Jonathan Smitty, who had been doing it for years before I even came on the scene, mm -hmm. is kind of a mentor to me. And like, oh, my other uh, regional missionary, Michelle, also. And so on a given week, I might be down, and some of these people were like, hey, yeah, let's go out. <laughs> and then a week or two later, I'll be like, come on, it's time. These people need us. 
sounds like it's growing here in Houston. Is this growing around the country as well? Is it's this a real groundswell? Crazy. So, uh, like I said, Steve Dawson started it in 2012, and now seven years later, we have around 300 teams in parishes wow. across the country and a few overseas in England, Philippines, and places like that. Uh, final question. So this is the St. Paul Street Evangelization, whom, of course, back when you were uh, um, reading the Bible as a teenager, you knew about St. Paul. But I'm wondering how this um, this evangelization has sort of transformed your thinking about Paul or your relationship with Paul. How do you how do you think about him? And in a sense, you're walking in his footsteps, doing similar things that he did. How, how do you think about St. Paul now? Oh, I'm just blown away with some of the stories we hear about him in Acts of the Apostles. And like, you see a real change in his mindset as he's going into his later letters written in prison that like, mm. yeah, okay, I've done. I've kept the faith. I'm going to be seeing Jesus soon. But he's got this enthusiasm for Timothy and Titus and the people who will be running the race after him. Sure. And just, yeah. Awesome. It's it's really weird, but like I ended up choosing Saint Paul as my confirmation saint. Okay. Ages before ages I even ago. thought That's of funny. doing evangelization That's under funny. his patronage. If somebody uh, is interested in uh, either um, joining your group, uh, becoming a missionary, or just learning more about your group, um, how can they get in contact with you or Saint Paul Street Evangelization? Great question, Stuart. So we have a website. It's www.streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. And we also have a Facebook group. And I'm listed as one of the contacts for Houston, so you can look it up there, or you can contact the national office directly. We have abundant resources, different tracts and brochures available, or people can buy miraculous medals and rosaries to distribute on their own or start their own team. Also, we have something called a basic evangelization training where we, similar to my missionary region, regional missionary training, we have people come out and train folks in how to do this form of evangelization. I'm hoping to get a basic evangelization training here in Houston sometime in Lent of 2020. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me. A pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. Mm-hmm.